Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Gonzalo Velasco Berenger for a conversation about King Philip II of Spain's territorial holdings in the Mediterranean basin. Dr. Velasco is a researcher and teaching assistant at the University of Bristol, based in the UK. His research interest is the Spanish monarchy in the early modern period with a particular focus on Philip II, Anglo-Spanish relations, Catholicism, and race and society in the Spanish monarchy. And he's the author of the forthcoming book that's provisionally titled Habsburg England, Politics, Religion, and Society in the Reign of Philip I, 1554-1558, which we published by Brill. Welcome to call, Gonzalo. Hi, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so we're going to have a conversation today about Philip II uh, when he was alive, his territorial holdings in the Mediterranean basin. And um, we'll certainly, uh, this will, might come up in your answer in a moment, or we'll, we'll get to it as well as he had more, more holdings uh, than just in the Mediterranean. But the focus of this episode is going to be um, those holdings in, in the Mediterranean basin today. To create uh, sufficient background and context for the conversation, can you uh, share as an overview who Philip II was? Yes, definitely. So Philip II um, of Spain was born on the 21st of May, 1527 in, in Valladolid, which is um, um, a city in, in central Spain, uh, to Emperor Charles V. Um, and to his wife, the Infanta Isabel of uh, Portugal. And Charles V um, what did not belong to originally to a Spanish um, dynasty. He belonged to the Habsburgs, which were in origin a German family that had ended up inheriting the, the, the extensive Spanish monarchy and had incorporated other territories that I'm sure we'll go back to um, in, in a second. So Philip II um, has come down to history uh, by the, you know, the, the epithet of the prudent, but prudent not understood as uh, the cautious uh, or, you know, the, someone who takes care of doing things well, but more in, as a cardinal virtue. So he who is able to recognize um, through reason what the best course of action is. He's also had um, a very bad press um, stemming from negative propaganda that started in his reign, but also afterwards. So he's been seen um, by some as a sinister, you know, a sinister character, always dressed in black and uh, not not a very likable one, um, who persecuted Protestants and, and and others. Whereas truth, as usual in this case, is often more more complex. And uh, he had he had a, a very um, complex set of of territories to govern and he had a complex personality um, as well so he was he was he had a keen awareness of of his important his importance as king of of the spanish monarchy and he also had a keen awareness of the importance of catholicism which was a central part of of his monarchical project and in terms of of his character he he was usually reserved and he could be aloof and this is something that has been used to describing to describe his character often, but he could also be capable, especially when he was um, when he was a younger prince, of um, you know, great displays of of chivalric 
behavior, um, including, you know, he, a love of dance, a love of, um, you know, parties, courtly ceremonies, and uh, jousting, dressing finely. So all that came with that. Obviously, as life went on, he became more, more reserved. Um, he, his letters to, later letters to his daughter sort of show a man with a more tender side to, to him, but he, he would never really show that in, in, in public. So a complex figure and someone who was um, in charge of ruling a vast monarchy in a, in a, very, in a very interesting but also very um, tumultuous period of, of, early, of, of history and European but world history as well. Okay. Um, his father was uh, Charles I of uh, Spain and uh, also known as Charles V, um, Holy Roman Emperor. Um, Dr. John Edwards of the University of Oxford, um, and you know him very well. <laughs> um, he, yes, re- I do. he referred he referred you as a as a as a guest, which I was delighted um, when that when that occurred. Um, John, Dr. Edwards has been on the show, and we we had a conversation about the Habsburg family um, uh, beginning to to rule uh, uh, Spain, and so so uh, Philip's father is Charles, and um, where, where that episode. Uh, somewhat ended or near the end of that episode, um, uh, Dr. Edwards described um, Charles' decision to abdicate and to divide uh, a pretty vast uh, empire up um, amongst amongst not only Philip but his uh, brother. Um, so can you, uh, so, so that there's sufficient background for the main part of this conversation today, can you can you speak about what's known about that that di- division. Um, if you want to bring in uh, his his brother, of course, by all, all means, in the in the in the answer, just to explain, you know, what was the territory? What went to his brother, uh, Charles's brother? What went to um, and what went to F- Philip in that uh, bequeathing? Yeah, definitely. So the I guess the context of that se- of the separation of of the the empire um, came from. That wasn't originally the intention. So Charles had wanted Philip to be his successor as Holy Roman Emperor, but it clearly became um, a, f- a big family tension with his brother Ferdinand, and that was sorted out eventually. The feud was um, was mended with the understanding that um, Charles and Philip would, the fifth would be succeeded in the empire by by Ferdinand. And we also need to understand to comprehend the. Um, separation. We need to understand the difference between the empire, which was a role, um, it was a title that was not inherited. It was, um, it, it acted almost as an inheritance within the Habsburg family, but it was um, formally an election. And the rest of the monarchy of the inheritance of Charles V, which was what um, they would have known as the patrimonial patrimonial estate. So they were territories that belonged, um, they were inheritable by the family, which was quite different. So he couldn't, he, he wouldn't have been able to get rid of his patrimonial inheritance in the same way that he decided to divide the empire. So what was decided was that Ferdinand would um, succeed in the Holy Roman Empire after the, um, the election that was necessary to formalize such a, um, an election, whereas Philip would be uh, the inheritor of the patrimonial estate. So obviously Spain, the Low Countries um, and the Italian Estates and, and other territories, and obviously the American territories, and 
um, that belong to, to, the, to the crown. So that's the context in which it happened. And it was, a, it was in two stages. The first stage was in 1555, when um, Charles V got um, Philip II, his, uh, you know, the family got together with uh, the, the estate, so the, the, the parliament of, of the Low Countries, and the nobility of his territories. And uh, he abdicated of uh, the Low Countries, so what is modern Belgium and, and the Netherlands. And then in 1556, he relinquished the um, imperial title and he relinquished his um, titles in Spain and, and in other places to, to Philip. Okay. Sorry, the, the empires of Ferdinand and the patrimonial states to Philip. Yeah, yeah, you got it in there. Okay, so uh, so let's let's uh, uh, zoom in then um, on the Mediterranean basin and let's let's talk about some of these these uh, territorial holdings. Um, some of them came up in your in your response, but let's 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 dig in here a little bit. So can you, in a in a pan kind of way, can you uh, describe what territorial holdings Philip would have had? Uh, in his uh, career that pertained to the Mediterranean basin? Yes, so uh, in the Mediterranean, he he had several holdings and there were, of course, the, um, the kingdoms that belonged to the monarchy of Spain. So um, obviously the, uh, the um, county of, of Barcelona, which is the, uh, or the Principality of Catalonia, which is how it was also known, the Kingdom of Valencia, to the south, also parts of uh, uh, the, King, the Kingdom of Granada and the Balearic Islands. Um, he was also king of um, of Naples and Sicily. He was king of um, Sardinia. He was Duke of Milan. And he also possessed um, the titular kingdom of Jerusalem, which um, was not um, you know, it was not. Um, uh, it was only a de jure title, not a de facto title. And he also possessed several um, territorial enclaves in in in, the, in North Africa, like Ceuta um, and Melilla, um, and Oran, and Tunis. Would you mentioned um, places like Barcelona, the Balearic the Balearic Islands, uh, Valencia, Granada, which all are in uh, pr- present day. Spain. Um, mm-hmm. So at this point in time, we're in the 16th century. Would so be, because he inherited um, uh, hegemony in those territories. Would those all be technically? Do scholars at this point in time consider those all technically under the same uh, government, or are they considered separate governments at this point in time? So the 16th century. They are separate governments, so we don't. Um, and this is this is something to relate as well to how we we refer to that um, vast entity known as the Spanish Empire. People refer to the Spanish Empire as if it were um, a homogeneous um, entity when it wasn't. And it was in the 16th century. It definitely was never known as um, an empire. It was known as the Spanish monarchy, and it was. It was organized in what um, Königsberger and um, John Elliot have called a composite monarchy. So the, comp- the idea of the composite monarchy is that they are territories which are not 
united um, like a formal modern nation state would be um, under you know one government, one law, and uh, one particular judiciary system, etc. But more as in separate kingdoms which conserve their own um, their own laws, their, their own customs, their own parliaments, their own um, their own royal councils as well. So it was very it was a very heterogeneous um, political system. And I mean, it, this didn't this wasn't always true for all the territories. Some territories which had been acquired through conquest might have might lose some of those um, rights. But the concept of rights and privileges and you know uh, what was known in Spanish as fueros, los fueros of, of a particular kingdom, were quite zealously guarded by by the Habsburg, and they were the cornerstone of, of the way that the Habsburgs understood um, the monarchy. So yeah, very much separate entities with with separate institutions, but united under um, a single monarch and a single religion. At in this period of time, would Barcelona, that that territory, Valencia, Granada, the Balearic Islands, the the four that we just uh, were speaking about there, would would they, uh, for tents and purposes, be uh, deemed the same type of holding or uh, classification, the same structure as uh, his holdings in Naples and Sicily, for instance? Yes, uh, as Naples and Sicily, they would because they were um, kingdoms and they had institutions that um, uh, institutions that worked on their own and they had done before um, Philip came to the throne. It is different if we're talking about enclaves like I don't know Ceuta or Oran, which were they would usually have a governor, but it was more of a it was a conquest and it was a town and it was a it was a, a commercial. Um, outpost but also a defensive outpost and it, it, it has different um implications for how it would have been seen but it would still have been but it would still have been part of the monarchy but um not not understood in modern terms as fully absorbed if that makes sense why was he called uh and of course, of course we're using english and at the you know it wasn't the english probably wasn't uh, what they were using but uh, English is the the show's in English, so we'll continue to use English. But why why is the the Naples and the Sicily holdings? Why was he considered king of Naples in in Sicily, whereas in Milan you mentioned he was Duke of Milan? Because they were they were just conformed differently, and they had you know the, the kingdoms have had been ruled by by a king, whereas dukedoms have been uh, ruled by by a duke. And Italy was not Italy had not been a, a unified state uh, it had been a, a, a conglomeration of um, of different states you had the papal estates that were governed by by the pope you had um, venice which was a republic you had genoa which was another republic and genoa had very um very tight financial links to the spanish monarchy they were almost um they were very 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 close but they were never part of the same um, entity that you had the dukedom of milan you had naples uh, to the south sicily obviously so they were all separate entities they had all had different um histories throughout the medieval um, period and they were not unified until the 19th century and that's why they each of them had different um governing um systems and, and institutions um 
you mentioned Genoa and Genoa and um, and and Venice. So those were not part of his holdings, though technically. No, no, they weren't. Okay, okay. So so let's yeah let's let's continue to focus on for now the the ones we were mentioning the the Balearic Islands, the Valencia, Granada. Um, all great places to visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, what what were his uh, official responsibilities then, uh, as the uh, as the reigning monarch uh, for those territories? Well, in terms of responsibilities, like uh, um, broadly speaking, the same responsibilities that he had for any other of his territories, and it, we're talking about a monarchy which is uh, vast in its extension. It's huge in a way that contemporaries had never seen anything of the like before because apart from the mediterranean basin you have the northern territories in in um, in the low countries you've got um, america you've got territories in in in, um, in congo and angola after the unification with portugal which we might we might touch upon later uh, territories in asia so it's it's a monarchy that is very very difficult to govern and the the more the spanish monarchy was governed through a conciliar system. The conciliar system is basically what it means is it's a system of councils, and you've got you've got the um, the Council of Castile, which uh, was in charge of most of the territory of Spain. Because even though um, what was classed under the uh, Crown of Castile, which were the kingdoms of Seville or the Kingdom of Granada, etc., they were separate kingdoms, but they were still under civilian um sorry under castilian um under the castilian crown so you had the um, council of state which was a smaller council of philip's most um closest advisors if you like and they they provided um advice on all sorts of um of topics but he also had others other councils that were um specifically designed to to tend to the needs of different parts of the spanish monarchy. Uh, you had the Council of Castile, which I've already mentioned. You had the Council of Aragon, and that Council of Aragon, would, um, the councillors in, in that council would discuss matters pertaining to the actual Kingdom of Aragon, um, with capital in Zaragoza, uh, the Principality of Catalonia with, um, with the capital in Barcelona, Kingdom of Valencia, and uh, the Balearic Islands. Uh, he also had the Council of Italy, which was um, in, in charge of Italian affairs, so Milan, um, Milan, Naples, Sicily, Sardinia, but also any other um, uh, Italian um, Italian affairs that might um, have an impact on Spanish activity in those territories or in, or in other territories. He would also have um, a council, you know, council of war, council of finances, which was the largest because um, managing the finances of such a vast um, array of kingdoms was difficult. So each of the, he also had one for forests and 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 works, which looked into uh, preservation of you know forests and uh, forestry rights and construction works and uh, all those of uh, all that sort of thing. So that was his responsibility would have been to make sure that those councils were uh, well um, provided with um, with um, good councillors and uh, the pool of councillors that he would usually. Get is what was known in Spanish the letrado, the man of of, of, of man of laws, and they were men usually coming from a um, middling classes of, of of society who would have been university 
um, trained in in the law. So they were, they were university, Spanish universities were almost like a um, you know like a, a quarry from which to extract the um, the uh, the the officials of of the monarchy. Uh, the other responsibilities that Philip had was to be to appoint viceroys or governors to each of the of the of the ter- territories he governed in 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 absentia so in absence so if he was not able to be there in person he needed someone that would embody the figure of the king and this would usually be um a nobleman sometimes spanish but sometimes depending on depending on the nature of their arrangement it would be a local nobleman or it could be a clergyman as well usually a cardinal or an archbishop a bishop someone who is high up in the ecclesiastical hierarchy and the king through the viceroys and governors he would be um, updated regularly on the affairs of those countries um, of those kingdoms and through his own councils he would also be able to um, well, influence policy see how policy was uh, working and um, yeah so that those that was mainly the way in which the monarchy was organized so that such a vast array of kingdoms could coexist under the same monarch because it was understood from the beginning that a sole human being could not possibly be um, in all places at the same time it was physically um, uh, logistically uh, economically impossible so ways were devised um, to have suitable replacements and ways for Philip to keep keep himself um, informed so was it the uh, councils that were uh, responsible for creating the the, the laws. Uh, to what degree uh, were his appointed governors uh, uh, involved in that that process? And and if that's the case, um, uh, to what degree um, did he have sort of a de facto um, uh, uh, kind of over like like uh, ability to still um the word i'm looking for is veto if you know if you know what i mean like like i think back to like uh you know you have the roman empire at some point and there is a senate there is a uh there's consuls but then there's also a roman emperor and the roman emperor had a lot of whether it was uh at certain points in time you know really said or not the roman emperor had a lot of authority uh despite all of this um you know levels of bureaucracy so can you can you can you illuminate that a little bit who who was technically responsible for creating the laws in these different um territories was it the 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 councils to what degree the governors and 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 in a in a in a in a in a pragmatic way uh how much authority did um philip have in these territories so Philip was the head of the monarchy, and as head of the monarchy, he was the one who was ultimately responsible for for any changes in legislation or any um, uh, any any significant um, policies that were implemented in any of his territories. So, if you like, he had the last word, um, but he didn't um, he didn't do. Um, I can't remember who said of him that he had the, the greatest brain in the world because he had the very good memory. But obviously, as a human being, there was only so much that he could remember or know. So he relied quite a bit on his counsellors and his um, his favourites, on family members who had um, um, uh, experience of government. And he, he was also very meticulous. So if counsellors 
would, so councillors would receive from, say, the Council of the Indies, which dealt with um, America. And America was very far away, so it was the, the hardest for Philip to keep in tune with. So the High Court of uh, the kingdoms there, the Real Audiencia, which also existed in other parts of the, of the monarchy, would send um, through the governor, through the viceroy, they would send uh, proposals. Well, we can't implement this law, which is um, typical in Castile, cannot be implemented in this territory because of whatever reason. And then it would be debated in the Council in Madrid, and the Council in Madrid would prepare um, a memorandum of matters they had discussed and what policy they sh they thought should be followed and then philip would all his secretaries depending on the on the matter would have a look at that and i guess at this point it, it, we need to talk about philip's character as well because he was a very meticulous um king he was incredibly meticulous he was um he has been called sometimes a bureaucratic king because he was he just sat for hours in his um in his desk um in his study and just go paper through um, after paper uh, making annotations and he would make annotations about um, important um, financial or military decisions that had to be made in Naples but he would also look into um, what the landscapers or the architects were saying about one of his um, palaces in, in Madrid so he was very meticulous to the point that sometimes he could be a bit inefficient with those things but at the same time he had a good overview of what was going on throughout the monarchy so he was able to definitely influence and have the last say on on the implementation of, of laws or any other uh, policy directions that he thought that his territory should take this is a, a um uh, a big uh, a question and what i mean by that is uh you know the, the amount of time we have probably won't do it sufficient justice but it's uh it's still an important one to, to cover as we're, you know, um, we're, we're getting, you know, we're, we're talking about his reign across a very large um, span of territory. And then there's other uh, um, territories that uh, will um, be, uh, you know, near these territories as well that he doesn't have reign over. So it's, it, are you, can you uh, speak about the geopolitical environment in the best way that you can in the in the answer? Um, uh, you know, given the amount of time that we have, uh, can you speak about the geopolitical environment in terms of the relations with with other uh, nations? Uh, any kind of key conflicts that you think is worthwhile highlighting in the Mediterranean basin during uh, this uh, period of time, etc. Yes, definitely. The, the, the whole um, the Mediterranean scene at this time, uh, from the point of view of the Habsburgs, is. Um, completely dominated by two problems and one of them is in in italy in particular two problems for for the habsburg monarchy and one of them is in, in italy in particular with the french and the other one is in the mediterranean in general with um islam um, in general if you like but in particular with the ottoman um, empire so uh, the the italian territories had been acquired uh, through different ways. So Milan, for instance, came to um, it came to Spanish hands through an arrangement with the last with the dynasty that was um, established in the dukedom of the Milan, the uh, Sforza. And when they died, um, with the male line got extinguished, Charles V acquired the dukedom, which he passed on to Philip. 
other kingdoms like Naples and Sicily had belonged to the um, originally to the Anjou family, which was um, part of the French royal family, a branch of the French royal family, and they then w went on to um, the hands of the Aragonese royal family. So, when in at the latter part of the 15th century, the French invaded Naples, and the they ousted the the Neapolitan Aragonese um, royal family and Ferdinand the Catholic intervened and basically managed to get the French out of the um, in the end and he acquired the kingdoms for himself so that was the it was a contested territory if you like which had originally been a papal fief so some a, a, a kingdom by papal appointment if you like um, so as you can imagine in that in that context, the French wanted to get back those territories because um, Italy was seen as um, one of the most important places from which to um, exert control in Europe because the Mediterranean was key to commerce, it was key to um, you know uh, trade with the East, it was um, whilst um, the Atlantic commercial system was being developed, whilst the Portuguese were becoming more powerful in the east and before the conquest of the Philippines or any other venture, the, the Mediterranean was still very much a, you know, an important scene for, for Europe. So it was very important to control Italy. And it was often seen as the key to um, overall control in, in, in the European continent itself. So that's on the one hand, the, the French wars that um, Charles V had throughout his reign and Philip II inherited that. So when he was still, still king of England through his marriage to Mary I when he was younger, which title that he lost later on, but he was also king of Spain. He had a war with French, with the French and the papacy, again, um, for territorial um, reasons um, surrounding Naples. Um, in 1559, there was a, a peace signed between um, Philip II and the French, the Peace of Cateau Campassi, and that brought about a renewed period of, of, of peace in Italy and uh, in a way it, it managed to 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 end for a time being at least um, those conflicts and they never regained you know the the, the, the violent um, strike they'd had before and it was just more of a the French tried to exert their rights but it was very much um, Naples and Sicily were very much controlled by the Spanish from then on um, the other conflict that I've alluded to was with the Ottoman um, empire, which were usually known as the by by most um, Europeans at the time as the Turks. Sometimes they would be called the Ottomans, but usually the Turks. And there was three different sides to this um, geopolitical conflict in in the Mediterranean. One was um, the an ideological one, uh, ideological and religious one in, in terms of the Catholic mission. Of the Spanish monarchy, the um, Spanish monarchs were um, they they fashioned themselves as champions of Catholicism. So they had a duty to expand Catholicism, um, and this had to do with certain prophecies that said that the Spanish monarchy would one day, or the Spanish king would one day reconquer Jerusalem from the infidels, um, would and would unite the world under one ruler and under one religion, and. In this context, um, Philip II felt that he had a God-given mission to fight the infidel 
so to fight in Islam and to um, extend Catholicism. That's that was the way that he um, understood that uh, mission, which was the ideological religious aspect of this conflict. Um, there is also territorial um, territorial conflicts. So the there was like Oran, for instance, which was a um, in, which is in, in present day. Algeria had been conquered by uh, Ferdinand the Catholic in uh, his or well, his troops in 1509, and it was governed by a Spanish governor. And then it was taken by the Ottomans in uh, uh, later on. So um, Tunis, Tunis uh, changed hands several times. So there was a territorial war going as well to to try and have more um, territorial enclaves in the Mediterranean, which would of course give more um, political and uh, commercial power. There was also a fight in this background, there was a fight for control over commerce and navigation in the Mediterranean. Whoever controlled um, trade would obviously be more powerful and more financially successful. And um, uh, perhaps a lesser, um, in terms of big big politics, it, it perhaps had less of a bearing than the other, the other um, issues I've, I've raised, but also, the, many of the Spanish and Italian territories in, in the Mediterranean suffered periodic um, raids from um, from Ottoman, um, usually pirates. Sometimes it could be um, state inspired, but usually pirates, which sometimes could have links with uh, with the Sultan. For they would raid for just pillage, or um, more usually for slaves, and that was something that. Were, the Spanish king was very conscious about, and they, it was organized in, in a way that when people wrote wills, they would, um, by law, have to bequeath, uh, uh, to leave part of their money to um, to pious causes, among which was the the ransom of of captives who were Christian captives who were serving as slaves in 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 Ottoman um, citadels. So, a mixture of of um, of reasons why this um, animosity um, happened, and it, it, it came. It was something that it was also happening inland in Europe. The Ottomans were making advances towards the Holy Roman Empire in 1526. So long uh, before Philip II was king, they had defeated the Hungarian king. Um, they were, at other points in history, they would be quite close to taking Vienna. So the Habsburgs felt that the, it was the responsibility of theirs to. Uh, protect, if you like, to act as the um, a paternal figure towards the rest of Europe by containing what they saw as um, uh, a Muslim or Turk, as they would have called it, um, threat. And this came to a head in, 15, in the year 1570, so in, 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 the, uh, in the middle of, of Philip's reign, when the, the Ottomans invaded um, Cyprus, which was... Um, it was a colony of Venice, of the Republic of Venice, which had ties with, with the papacy and had ties with the Spanish monarchy as well. And in 1571, um, they were besieging um, the town of Famagusta, and uh, the Pope decided to intervene. And we're talking about Pope Pius V. He's a very important Pope in the 16th century because he was very, he was very driven to reform the Church. This is after the Council of Trent, so he has he had a lot of reform. Um, in his mind, he published the catechism that, that was to be used by all um, Catholics, and he was very, he was very proactive, and he created what was called the Holy, the Holy League, which was composed mainly by the papacy, Spain, Venice, and 
other Italian independent states like the Duke of um, Savoy or uh, the Republic of Genoa. And they created a, a fleet which was tremendously big for the time. It was one of the biggest fleets that had been assembled. And it was composed, of, the Christians had um, 206 galleys and six galleuses with heavy artillery. Um, it was commanded by Philip II's illegitimate half-brother, um, Juan de Austria, known in, in, in English as Don John of Austria. Um, and the Ottoman fleet was composed of 222 war galleys, 56 galleons, and they were commanded by Admiral Ali Pasha. And the battle, um, there was a, a big battle which had, had a, a tremendous bearing in, in the conception of the Spanish monarchy, which was, uh, it took place on the 7th of October, 1571, um, in uh, just off Lepanto, in, in the Gulf of Patras in, in Greece. And uh, the the naval battle ended with a, a big vict a victory for, for the Christians, and they managed to take 117 galleys, they took 20 galleons, they destroyed around 50 ships, and um, it ended up Ottoman advances for a while. It was not the end, obviously, as we know, but it, for a while, um, Philip II portrayed it as, even though he had been, the Spanish was not the only force in that um, battle, but because he had been commanded by by his brother, uh, the Spanish portrayed it, and Philip II portrayed it as a Spanish victory for the faith and against the infidel, which was very much uh, part of his um, monarchical project. Earlier, I want to go back to one of his territorial holdings uh, that you mentioned, in, I think it was in your first response, that appeared to have a different type of um, uh, responsibility, perhaps, is a, is a term uh, to it for Philip. You mentioned the term, it was titular, that's where I'm getting that from, and that was Jerusalem. Can you take a moment and explain what that territorial uh, holding was as it relates to Philip II? Yes, definitely. So it it didn't have any territory attached because it was titular and it was it came um, with the kingdom of Sicily. So they were joined together for uh, different historical um, uh, events in, in the medieval period. So there was um, it was a legacy of the old Crusader kingdom. So in the twelfth century, um, the Crusades were successful and they took Jerusalem. They created the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, which was ruled by a Christian um, European dynasty. And a century or so later, it was lost, and um, the, the royal family of Jerusalem were forced to flee. They went back to the, to the original territories in, in, in Europe, but they maintained that title of kings of Jerusalem, and it passed on through different um, people who inherited it, and it came... To Philip, he was not the only one to claim it, but he was the one who, um, in a way, was most recognised by the Pope as the um, the one who had received the responsibility of um, uh, symbolically taking care of uh, Jerusalem, because for um, for Catholicism, Jerusalem was the Holy Land, and it was very much the understanding that at one point Christians would be able to retake it from. Um, from the Ottomans who had conquered it in the 15th century. So that was the significance of, of the title. And it fit very well with the messianic ideas of, of the Spanish monarchy. So the king of, of Spain wanted to, um, they believed in this idea that 
um, they could be the universal monarch that would bring together um, the whole world under one king and under one um, religion. So Jerusalem was important in, in, in that respect. But in terms of territorial advantages, it didn't bring any because there was not no, you know, it was, it was not um, Christian territory. So it was more of a prestige um, title, a type, yeah, a title that conferred prestige rather than um, anything else. And so during Philip's uh, career, the Ottomans uh, had hegemony in that area then. They had hegemony over uh, Jerusalem. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so the, the old kingdom of Jerusalem, when it fell um, in, in, the, uh, in the 13th century, it was later um, ruled by the Mamluks. And in 1517, the Ottomans had gained control of Jerusalem. So it was, it was them that um, ruled over the, the territory of Jerusalem. Okay. Um, several times in this conversation, you uh, mentioned the Catholic Church and the, the Pope. Uh, so it sounds like there was a very um, close relationship that Philip had with the Catholic Church. Can you, uh, can you take a moment and share... They're, they're obviously in large part allies. Um, you described the one of the battles. Um, his his father was a uh, Holy Roman Emperor, uh, but can you can you take a moment and describe uh, what that dynamic was and why Philip would um, really uh, invest in 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 continuing the relationship? Probably invest in trying to make the relationship even better. Can you help? Can you help? Um, Explain that 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 the dynamic between the church and and uh, the, the the monarchy. Yes. Um, first of all, from a, just from a purely personal perspective, Philip was very devout himself. So he was someone who, um, uh, you know, followed the precepts of the church mostly. Um, sometimes when when he had trouble accessing a particular enemy, he might he might try to resort to not very not very Christian ways of um, getting rid of them, but. In usual, in, in, in usually, and in his outlook, he was a very devout, very um, fiercely Catholic individual. So that's on the from the personal point of view. But Catholicism was tied to the Spanish monarchy in very, very intimate ways because um, the the kings of uh, Castile and Aragon, etc., etc., come from. Uh, which is something that probably came up in um, in in the previous chapter um, episode you had with with um, Doctor Edwards. The um, the monarchs had gradually reconquered some of the territories that had been part of a, a previous Visigothic kingdom um, that were under Muslim rule. So that was always a, um, an understanding that um, Spanish kings had that you know there, there was a certain religious mission that they had to um, fulfil, and in in the uh, uh, late 15th century, in 1492, when Ferdinand Isabel um, conquered Granada, which was the last Muslim uh, stronghold in, in Spain, the, they were seen as having completed, if you like, a, um, a religious crusade against um, the Muslims. So they were granted the title of Catholic monarch. We, are, we usually know them, you know, Ferdinand the Catholic or Isabel the Catholic or um, the Spanish kingdoms were known as the Catholic king. But that was just not an expression. It was an actual um, papal title, so a title they had received from the Pope. And they took that 
responsibility to be the Catholic kings very, very seriously. Um, they, uh, they had reached an understanding uh, following centuries of um, tense, but um, largely, largely functional relationships between the three different um, Abrahamic um, religions, so Christianity, Islam, and Judaism in, in Spain, by the end of the 15th century, it had come to a point when um, the Spanish monarchs understood this monarchical project as one which, in order to be united, especially as they um, um, acquired more and more territories, in order to be united, they had to have a common thread, and that common thread was religion and in particular, the Catholic religion. So they expelled the Jews in 1492 or um, made them to, um, or forced them to convert. They would um, expel the Muslims or force them to convert a few, um, couple of generations later. So it was all geared towards um, a religion which could be quite exuberant, so Catholicism could have many different forms in different parts of the monarchy, but it was still Catholicism. So it, that's how they understood it, and that's why they had that very um, special relationship with the papacy. But the paper, uh, the relationship with the papacy could also be uh, quite antagonistic sometimes, because um, the Pope, as spiritual leader, but also as um, the ruler of his own, his own estate, would sometimes have a say on... Uh, not only Mediterranean affairs or what the king, what sort of uh, religious undertakings a king should be uh, getting involved in, but also in European matters. So which king had a better claim to which throne and things like that. And it's a, the, the war I mentioned earlier in the 1550s between um, Spain, the papacy, Spain against the papacy and France was because the Pope then, which was uh, Paul IV, was a Neapolitan. And he was a Neapolitan who highly resented uh, Spanish rule. So when he became Pope, he did his utmost to try and um, basically throw the Spanish out of, of Italy. So there were all these different um, different rhythms. So it was not always a friendly relationship, but it was never... Uh, Philip II never contemplated breaking with Rome like Henry VIII or some of the German princes or the uh, Nordic kingdoms have done. It was never part of his um, of his project because his his monarchical project was always always um, self defined as Catholic. It was a Catholic project as well because he was a Catholic king. Okay, thank you for explaining, Gonzalo. Um, so some closing questions, and we'll we'll wrap up the episode. Um, is, is anything known about how much he would have visited all these territories in his life in the in the Mediterranean? Not much, because <laughs> he, um, he unlike his father, he was not uh, the traveling kind. So it's um, Charles V had ruled his empire by moving to all the different places that he ruled over, except um, the Americas, because obviously that, that wouldn't have been uh, logistically possible at the time, and in his, um, in fact, in his, um, in his abdication, he he mentioned that he had, um, he said, and I'm quoting from from what he said, the campaigns I undertook, some to begin wars, some to make peace, took me nine times to Germany, six times to Spain, 
seven times to Italy, four times to France, twice to England and twice to Africa. I have crossed the Mediterranean Sea eight times and sailed the Atlantic Ocean twice. We see none of this with Philip, um, especially not after 1559. He was very much, um, he self-fashioned himself as a Spaniard. He was, uh, his father was Flemish originally, his mother was Portuguese, even though both his um, uh, grandmothers were Spanish, but he, he felt himself to be Spanish because he had been born and bred there. Um, so when he visited Italy it was 1548, that was the, the time that he visited when he was still prince he was 21 and um his father wanted to um basically groom him to be his successor and he wanted him to be sworn heir in the low countries and he decided to water better occasion than to have him travel from italy uh, through the holy roman empire and all the way to um to the low countries and that's what philip did so he went to milan and that's what um the place he visited um and he was received there with uh, pageantry, uh, you know, lots of arches that represented him as the, the inheritor of the world and the noble prince that was going to, to guide the world, etc. But that was very much his um, stint mm. in, 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 in Italy. He, would go, he, he did go to um, Valencia and to Catalonia in, uh, when they were um, the courts, so the, 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 the local parliaments, in, in those kingdoms, he would go there, um, but it was not um, often that he would. So um, uh, he, he started his reign in England because he, he was king of England. So he was, well, he was not technically in England. He was in the Low Countries, but he was jumping back and forth. And then in 1559, after his father had abdicated, he uh, traveled back to Spain after having been away from Spain for five years. And he, he, he never left. He only left in the early 1580s when when he became king of portugal he spent three years in lisbon but other than that the rest of his life he spent within the confines of what we understand as modern day um spain today okay so by the end of his uh life and reign uh how did these territorial holdings uh change including was there any new ones that uh you believe should be mentioned as it pertains to the mediterranean basin yeah, so the the territories retained, uh, the Spanish monarchy lost, I think I mentioned earlier, Tunis, and Tunis had been taken from the Ottomans by Charles V in 1535, uh, for instance, and there had been a big, you know, there's the big celebrations around that, and uh, magnificent tapestries that are now um, kept in the Royal Palace in Madrid. And then they would stay in Spanish hands for part of Philip's reign, so in 1569, the Ottomans took it again, so they reconquered Tunis. Then in 1571, Philip II conquered Tunis again, but in 1574, it was uh, lost to the Ottomans, this time permanently again. So that's one of those um, cases in which that territory ceased um, to be Spanish. But the rest, um, Naples, Sicily, Milan, um, Sardinia, they all remained in, in Spanish hands. Oran remained in Spanish hands. Um, and then when he became king of Portugal, he brought with uh, the Portuguese inheritance other territories like Ceuta and, and Melilla. And Ceuta and Melilla are still um, part of the Spanish um, state. So they, they, they are autonomous cities in, in, in Northern Africa. Um, 
and the rest of the territories remained in Spanish hands for quite quite a long time. So um, Sicily, Naples, Milan and Sardinia remained in Spanish hands until the War of Succession in 1713. So that's um, quite a long period. Um, Oran in the north of Africa until 1792. Um, so it, I guess it is interesting to think sometimes that Milan, for instance, which is, you know, if you talk about Italy, you, you can almost instantly think about uh, Milan. And Milan was part of the Spanish monarchy for longer than it has now been part of unified the unified Italian state. So that I think that gives a bit of perspective into how long this uh, really close relationships of power between Spain and the Mediterranean um, outside of the Spanish territory were. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, they they they, they did they just passed on to Philip the Third, who was Philip's youngest um, mm. son and eventual heir, and and they remained in Spanish hands for a number of years um, to come. Okay, um, you have a book uh, that's coming out at some point soon. How's that experience uh, been? And uh, do you want to take a moment and share what the book's about? Sure. Yes. So the book is, um, it stems from the research I, under, I undertook as a postdoctoral um, um, student and I've taken it forward. It looks to uh, a period of history which is very, very interesting um, because it's when Philip II of Spain became king of England through his marriage to Mary Tudor. And the reign was brief, 1554, 1558, but they managed to pack quite a lot in there because they, they brought back Catholicism and for a time, England and Ireland both became part of um, the wider Spanish monarchy. So I look into um, ideas of, of uh, the Spanish Empire, the universal monarchy that I've I've mentioned before. We look into the how how did the um, the Spanish and the English coexist in 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 London and in, in England, and and what did the Catholic project and the um, the idea to bring back Catholicism to England have an influence in, in the ring. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's what the book um, is about. And uh, yeah, it was a short reign because Mary died childless and that was the, the end of it. But it's highly significant in the histories of both um, Spain and England. And it, it helps understand uh, what the Spanish monarchy and the Spanish kings were trying to do and how they, they sought to extend uh, their power and dominion. Do you have an estimated uh, date yet or a scheduled date for its release? No, it's not estimated yet, but it's it's on it, it's it is finished. So hopefully it won't um, it won't take too long. It still it still needs to go through some some reviews and, and additions, but okay. hopefully it won't, won't be too long now. OK, it's coming in the reasonable future. <laughs> yes, yes, I definitely hope so. <laughs> so if anybody would like to pick up Dr. Velasco's uh, forthcoming book, that I had mentioned at the start of the episode. It's provisionally titled Habsburg, England, Politics, Religion and Society in the Reign of Philip I, 1554 to 1558. It's going to be published by Brill. Gonzalo and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.